Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good day. Welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to have with us Professor Jeffrey Parker. Professor Parker is Professor of History at Ohio State University. He is one of the premier historians writing and working in the early modern period of European history. He is author of a good number of well-known books, including The Army of Flanders and the Spanish Road, Military Revolution, and The Grand Strategy of Philip II. He is a fellow of the British Academy, and in 1999 was awarded the Samuel Eliot Morrison Prize for Lifetime Achievement by the Society of Military History, for Military History. And today, we are speaking about his book, Emperor. A New Life of Charles V, published by Yale University Press. Welcome, Professor Parker. Thank you. Professor, given that most of your career, for most of your career, you've uh, for the most part dealt with the second half of the 16th century and the first uh, half or first quarter of the 17th century, why did you uh, decide to write this book, particularly in view of the fact that you've written uh, three biographies or three studies, I should say, of uh, Philip II, the son of, uh, of course, of Charles V. Yeah, they're connected. Um, I was doing some research on Philip II in the wonderful library of the Hispanic Society of America, and I called up a document. This is 2009, so I'm finishing off with Philip, uh, seeking a divorce, and I came upon a document, B. 2955, I still remember the number, which said instructions of Charles V to Philip II, 1543 copy. And I thought, okay, I'll just take a look. And when it came up, I noticed it was in a box. It was um, bound in beautiful red Morocco with gold edging. And when I opened it up, I saw immediately it was not a copy at all. It was the original. Now, the document was known but nobody for more than a century had seen the original. And when I looked at it and looked through it, I could see that Charles V writing these instructions for young Philip, aged 16, who was going to become his regent in Spain, uh, Spanish Italy, and Spanish America. Uh, The emperor wanted to give him a lot of advice, and he filled 50 folios of handwritten advice, written alone, heavily corrected. There were a lot of deletions. There were a lot of additions. Sometimes a page would have as much addition in the margin as it had text. And I thought to myself as I read that, wow, how did this guy get to be so clever? Uh, uh, Because it's, you know, the emperor is born in 1500. So in 1543, he's 43 years old. It's really easy to remember his birth, uh, the the year of his uh, life. And I thought, how does he get to be like that? And that dragged me into the subject. And I thought, okay, I'm going to write a biography to find out how he got to be so smart. And in writing a book about one of the most famous individuals in European history, what did you hope to illustrate and or bring out by way of aspects of uh, novelty in terms of the existing interpretation of his uh, personality and reign? Well, um, (laughs) uh, biographies have a lot of things in common. I mean, the structure usually starts with birth and ends with death. In the case of Charles, he's born in Ghent, uh, Ghent in Belgium in 1500, and he dies in Juste in Spain in 1558. It's true that I I, I found a little bit more. I found a medical intervention um, when he was in utero. There's a crisis, and they have to bring in special uh, midwives and and a uh, a ring uh, which uh, the ring of the virgin from a local monastery which is supposed to help women in labor so i i got to him just a little before his birth and 
I found a reference to a Franciscan friar in Guatemala who reported a vision in which he saw Charles V's soul ascend to purgatory in, from purgatory to paradise in 1562. Now, that was interesting because the guy dies in 1558. So why four years uh, uh, in purgatory? Or, or if you're a Protestant, why only four years? Uh, but this is a Catholic text. And the author, curiously, does ask, uh, why was the emperor in purgatory for four years? And he knows the answer. And that is, why did Charles V not burn Luther as a heretic when he had him in his power at the Diet of Worms? So I look very carefully at the Diet of Worms in 1521 to see exactly what happened. And it's amazing the sources in German, Italian, Spanish, French, uh, and some in English. There's English observers there too. And when you put them all together, it's a very interesting picture. So I tried to look at documents that would do something new. The 1521 documents, um, the uh, document I described to you, the detailed papers of advice in 1543. Uh, but I also looked at uh, uh, one or two other sources. And in particular, um, there's <laughs> Charles V um, was cured rather like a ham uh, when he dies in Yuste, which is high in the mountains uh, 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 in the Sierra de Gredos, not far from Haburgo, from which all the best hams come in Spain. And those hams are put in caves and they're cured by being put there, exposed. And Charles V is putting the crypt at the monastery of Juste when he dies. And he spends 16 years there before he's hauled off to the uh, Escorial, which is where he now is. And in that period, he, he gets cured. Uh, he, he's not mummified. Uh, but when his coffin is opened in 1568 uh, for view uh, by the um, Spanish public, uh, uh, it's clear that he, he's intact. He's there. He's still got his little turban on. You can see his pronounced chin. Uh, but someone snips off the end of one of his fingers. And then in 1912, so a, quite a long time afterwards, they send it back to the Escorial. And the Escorial prior puts it in a little box. And in the early years of this century, 2004, if I recall, um, a, a, a specialist in malaria, hearing that Charles V died of malaria, and he did, uh, decides to do a de uh, excuse me um, a, 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 an experiment on it. He rehydrates the mummified uh, finger of Charles V and puts it to a number of tests, and it shows two really important things. Number one, he does die of malaria. Indeed, he dies of a double dose of malaria, uh, almost certainly picked up after he got to Juste, which uh, until very recently was one of the most malarious zones of Spain. And secondly, it showed that the soft tissue in his joints had been eaten away uh, by what we would call arthritis or gout. And the emperor always complains about pain. And remember, this is a period with no aspirin, no Percocet, no Oxycontin. And so he, he's just suffering uh, with what must have been agonizing problems, because if this is what's happening to his little finger, the joints are being eaten away. Of course, he's in constant pain. And uh, uh, so, you know, it gave you a d dimension. So, so if you like, it, it, it's based on, on a study of everything from documents to digits. Were there any challenges uh, in the fact that you uh, have written now biographies of both father and son, Charles V and Philip II? Uh, there were advantages. I, I'll get to the challenge in a moment. The advantage is uh, I know what happens next. Um, uh, I, I, uh, having studied Philip II, who takes over from Charles in, in 1555 in the Netherlands, 1556 in Spain, Spanish Italy and Spanish America, I know where things start going wrong. And you can trace back some of the defects to Charles's reign. So that was a big plus. Uh, uh, it, it was a sort of historical hindsight. Um, uh, and it was useful. But the biggest challenge was um, actually as a biographer. Uh, I've only written two biographies, really, one of Philip II and one of Charles V. And father and son, uh, how do you make them different? Um, and uh, you know, there's the obvious things. Philip II lives for 71 years. Uh, Charles V abdicates when he's 56. Uh, both of them take power very young. So there's a lot of rain to compare, but there's more for Philip II. But it was really the structural, the architecture of your book. That's, that's the word I'm looking for. The architecture of the book had to be different. And in every biography, you need to um, 
uh, look at the horizontal as well as the vertical factors. The horizontal factors is just the passage of time. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. And you divide it into chronological chapters. Uh, but at some point, you need to stand back and say, OK, how did the guy deal with the really big issues of life? And in the case of my biography of Philip II, Imprudent King, published uh, by Yale in 2014, I had three chapters in the middle called The King at Work, The King at Play, and The King at Prayer, which was how he spent most of his time. I couldn't do that with Charles, although he also worked, he played, and he prayed. So in the case of Charles, I decided that I would stand back at certain key points in his life and make those sort of bookends. So the first bookend is 1517, the year in which he leaves the Netherlands, where he's lived all his life, and goes to Spain to take up a new inheritance. And what sort of man or young man, he's only 17, what sort of teenager is getting onto the boat What's he done? What's his interests? How do other people see him? Because Charles, even then, is never alone. He's always surrounded by people, uh, uh, courtiers, ambassadors, and these people write about him. So there's a lot of material, really, from you know, the first account of Charles comes when he's five months old. And an ambassador from his grandparents in Spain go, goes up and says, oh, what a wonderful grandson, how chubby, how strong, look what he does. And, uh, you know, what all grandparents want to hear, really. Uh, but at age 17, there's rather more uh, evidence. So I, the first bookend is then, what was he like? What was the young Charles like? The second bookend is in 1529, when he goes to Italy for the first time. And there he has just defeated all his enemies. He has defeated the French, humiliated them, routed them, made them make a really, really uh, uh, humiliating peace. He's also captured the Pope. His troops have sacked Rome and forced the Pope to make a number of concessions. And so he comes to Italy and basically wipes out all his other enemies. Uh, he makes Venice make peace. He makes Florence make peace. All the cities and the city-states and republics that have defied him are forced to come to terms. So what sort of man was he here when he comes to the threshold of real power? What's he like then? So that's the second Book and the third one is in 1548, when he really has defeated all his enemies. He's even crushed the German Protestants and made them accept uh, a, a new form of, of liturgy and worship. Uh, so what's he like then? So that's how I divided it up. I put together work, play, and prayer at three different moments, 1517, 1529, and 1548. Can you describe a bit the upbringing of the future emperor, uh, at the time called the Duke of Luxembourg in uh, Flanders? Yeah, he was he was indeed born in Ghent, the capital of Flanders, and he lives he lives there, uh, 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 even more at Mechelen, uh, Maline in French, Malines in the Spanish sources, but today it's Mechelen, and he lives there in the, in the palace of his aunt, uh, because his mother and father leave the Netherlands in 1505, and they never come back. Philip, his father, dies in Spain after a year, and his mother, Joanna, is, is, um, uh, stays in Spain. It's a very sad story. She's, um, she, she doesn't really want to govern, and so her, grand, her father, Ferdinand the Catholic, locks her up and pretends she's mad, and uh, she really never gets out. She dies uh, in 1555. She, she outlives all, all her siblings and, and some of her children. Um, so, but at this point, the important thing is he, Charles is an orphan. Uh, his mother's gone, his father's dead, and he is brought up in the Netherlands by his father's sister, Margaret of Savoy. And also, uh, the male role model in his life is the father of Philip and Margaret, the Emperor Maximilian, who makes five visits to the Netherlands. Uh, while Charles is a young man and stays quite a long time. He takes him hunting. Uh, uh, he, he, he lets him see jousting. Uh, he does all sorts of things that Charles likes. And, and I think he's very important um, uh, in, in his life. He really is a role model and um, uh, not always a good one. Uh, he, Maximilian, um, uh, never keeps promises. Uh, he hates the French. And tells his grandson, never ever believe the French. They'll 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 really wreck your life. At one point, when his um, 
someone writes to him that something that the, the, the emperor Maximilian doesn't like. He said, you must think I'm a Frenchman. Obviously, the, the, the lowest insult that he could find. Um, he also undertakes policies that he can't afford, just as Maximilian would, will do, just as Charles will do. And he teaches Charles that the most on, on, important things in life are to maintain the honor of Burgundy and his personal reputation. Don't do anything that imperils your reputation. So it's very important. Um, but you asked me what the what the childhood was like. I think it's a fairly happy childhood. But clearly, Charles does not like learning and uh there's a number of comments from these uh, ubiquitous observers, the courtiers and the ambassadors, on how much he doesn't like uh, to read and write. His writing is always terrible. It's one of the problems of writing his biography. I mean, I sometimes look at pages of Charles V that I've been able to transcribe, and I look at it you know, a couple of months later, and I think, what on earth is this? It looks like a spider has walked across the page, and I have to learn it all over again. Paleography is a curse for 16th century historians. So Charles, uh, why is it so bad? Because he's a high school dropout. Not only does he come from a dysfunctional family, but he's a high school dropout. At 15, he has the brilliant idea of sending his tutor as an ambassador to Spain. He says, look, the ambassador is called Adrian of Utrecht, who will later become Pope. He becomes Pope Adrian VI. But at this point, is Charles's tutor. And Charles sends him to Spain, saying, oh, I've got such, such a delicate mission. Only you, only you. My tutor, Adrian, only you can carry it out. And uh, that gets rid of his tutor, so he doesn't ever have another one. And his learning stops right there at age 15. So it's, 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 it's a happy childhood, I'm sure. I'm sure many kids are very happy to live in a large household, being waited on hand and foot, uh, lots of money to throw around, um, a grandfather who comes and spoils you, an aunt who, who is very indulgent too. Um, but it's not perhaps the best upbringing for someone who's going to rule a very significant part of the world. Would it be correct to say that Charles V's primary family influence, cultural influence in growing up, was not so much Spanish or Habsburg, but Burgundian Valois? Yes, that's a very interesting question, because, of course, Maximilian of Austria is from the House of Habsburg. He's Holy Roman Emperor. But in 1470, I mean, he, he has a very unhappy childhood. He's an only child. Um, he, we, we have all his uh, uh, notebooks from school, and, and clearly he, he really doesn't like learning either, but he's made to beaten, I think. Uh, but in 1477, when he's about 24, he decides that he wants to marry um, the heiress to uh, all the lands of Burgundy, which are much of the Netherlands and quite a lot of territory to the east of France, Franche-Comte and the Duchess of, Duchess of Burgundy. And so he rides across Europe in a great romantic voyage, a great romantic odyssey, ends up uh, uh, in, in uh, uh, I think it's Bruges, proposes to Mary of Burgundy and marries her and stays there. He then becomes, he really likes the Burgundian lifestyle. You know, it's, 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 it's um, very chivalrous. Again, lots of food, lots of wine, lots of jousting. Uh, Maximilian writes a book at one stage about all his jousts, how many jousts he's had, what he did, who he knocked off a horse with, uh, who, who, who's, who's, which other knights he knocked off their horse, etc. So he just loves the Burgundian lifestyle. So I think because of that, and because Charles is brought up in a Dutch-speaking city, Mechelen, uh, and spends all his life there in the, seven, in the first 17 years of his life, all of them are spent there. Uh, uh, Mechelen, Brussels, he tours around uh, yeah, he, he is a Burgundian, and he, he keeps a number of the values of the House of Burgundy. Um, the French uh, capture the Duchy of Burgundy, and they refuse to give it back. And something Charles keeps on trying to do is get back the Duchy of Burgundy. He's even still on about it in the 1540s, saying, you know, I want it back. It's our heritage. And uh, in his final advice to Philip II, he said, don't ever give up the Franche Comte of Burgundy because it's our house. That is where we start. So uh, uh, not only is his um, um, primary family influence growing up Burgundian, he remains a Burgundian all his life. And is it also the case that uh, Charles imports to Spain the uh, Burgundian court rituals, which... Yes, he does. Subsequently, seems very rigid and, quote, Spanish, but in actual fact was Burgundian Valois. You're correct on both counts. 
Would it be correct to say that Charles V was less interested in humanism of the time than, say, Henry VIII or other Renaissance rulers? Yeah, as I say, he's a, house, a, a, a high school dropout. Um, you can tell. I mean, how do we know? How do we know what uh, what culture he has? Does he have deep cultural references in his letters? Does he quote classical authors as many others do, as Henry VIII does? Or Henry VIII hates to write. Uh, you've only got to look at Henry VIII's writing, which is like a man with two hands on the quill. Uh, look at his letters for Anne Boleyn, um, um, which interestingly are in the Vatican. Uh, uh, and you'll see a man who really, really hates writing and writes very seldom. But nevertheless, we know that he reads a lot. He's often pictured with a book in his hand. I know of one picture of Charles V with a book in his hand. Uh, but the same with Francis I. Francis also uh, is a man who has lots of books and is a great patron of culture. But Charles really doesn't. However, uh, uh, now and again, he surprises you by pulling out knowledge uh, from books he has uh, uh, and, and also music. Um, there's a very interesting uh, story, uh, which I, I found out late in my attempts to write the biography. Um, when he retires at Juste, um, uh, uh, he, he likes to go and listen to the choir singing choral masses. And on one occasion, a new guy comes up from Seville, a man called Francisco Guerrero, uh, who becomes a very famous composer. But on this occasion, he's just published a little book of motets, and he comes up to sing them with the choir in Hyoste. And the choir think, this is terrific, it's wonderful. And then Charles V said, no, the guy's a plagiarist. I've heard that tune. I've heard that tune. I know exactly where it comes from. And he names the other composer and all the monks go, ooh, and ah. But, you know, that's that's an element of culture. You know, your question was, um, uh, uh, is he more or less interested in humanism? If you define humanism as written learning, the answer is no. It doesn't seem to interest him at all. But in the wider sphere, such as art, where he's got a very good eye for painting. I mean, he patronizes Titian and a number of other of top-rate artists, some of them in the Netherlands, some of them in Spain, but a lot of them in Italy. Uh, and if you think of music, then he clearly knows what he likes, and he promotes what he likes, and he takes an interest in it. Um, but if it's books, no, I think you'd have to say that he, he would take second place to Henry VIII and Francis I. Why were not the colossal military victories of Pavia in 1525 and Mulberg in 1547 not followed up by political ones which uh, lasted? Yeah, that's a very good question. The, the, the outcome is slightly different. Uh, uh, Pavia is um, a much greater battle. I mean, it's between very large armies on both sides. Uh, Charles is not present. Uh, Mulberg is much smaller armies and Charles is present and takes a leading part in the victory itself. Now, Pavir is won by his generals, but they, it's, it's an enormous victory. They managed to capture uh, the King of France. The King of France does participate in person, and he falls, uh, he, he, he is captured. Uh, he, he lies on the ground, and people start stripping him, and he says, don't do, don't, I'm the King of France. And the first German over him says, no, you're not. If you're the King of France, I'm the Pope. Uh, and then another guy comes up and says, no, no, he really is the King of France. So they take him away, uh, send him to uh, uh, Madrid, which is where Charles V lives at that point. And Charles V, I think, just blows it. Francis, Francis outwits him. That's really what it comes down to. Because Pavia is won in February 1525, and therefore it would be perfectly possible to continue the campaign uh, uh, and press into the heart of France. But Charles negotiates. And uh, time goes by, the summer goes by, and in the end, there's no campaigning season left. Uh, he doesn't treat Francis very well, but in the end, he uh, forces him to make certain concessions. Uh, he will return the Duchy of Burgundy, um, which Charles very much wants. Remember, I mentioned that in an, uh, one of your earlier answers to one of your earlier questions. And he promises to do lots of other things. And Charles believes him and lets him go and says, okay, you know, but uh, if you don't keep your promise within three months, uh, you have to come back again. You are my prisoner. I'm letting you go on your word. He said, word of a night, word of a night, I will keep my word. I will, I promise, I swear to you as a knight that I will do exactly what I promised. And of course he doesn't. He goes to France and immediately says, ha, you know, uh, promises made under duress are not binding. I don't intend to do anything that I promised Charles. 
And Charles is about the only person who believes that Francis will execute the things he's been forced to concede. But you see, there's where the Burgundian heritage comes in. In the culture of Burgundy, knights do what they say, even if they don't like it. So Charles is really deceived or, or blinded almost. He's blinded. He cannot see that Francis was definitely not going to keep his word. So that's really why Pavere is a barren victory. I mean, it gets rid of a lot of French knights. Uh, and you'd have to go back to Agincourt uh, uh, for a battle which gets rid of more French knights and, and, and captains and generals. And the king himself is taken out of action for, 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 for eight months. Um, but it is not a political victory because Charles is, is foolish in not pressing his advantage immediately and even more foolish in believing that a king who is being uh, made to make concessions as a prisoner is going to keep his word. Now, on to Muhlberg. Why does that not produce, um, why does that not produce lasting results? Well, in a way it does. It lasts a lot longer. There uh, at Muhlberg, he actually, again, he captures uh, his leading adversary, the Elector of Saxony, and uh, uh, the other Protestant leaders, German Protestant leaders, turn themselves in. And Charles, in fact, imprisons them and just takes over their countries. So, so you know, it's not like letting Francis go back to France. Uh, he keeps the prisoners and takes over the country. And he then, uh, uh, in 1548, the year after the battle, imposes a religious settlement, uh, which it, it hope, he hopes will be a way that Lutherans and Catholics can live together because his aim right from the Diet of Worms, right from before the Diet of Worms, is to preserve the unity of Christendom. And by 1548, it really can't be done. But again, Charles deceives himself because in 1550 and 1551, a lot of information comes to light that the German Protestants are planning a comeback, are planning to renege on the concessions they made and attack Charles and, and, and take over Germany and turn it against him. And the emperor completely ignores them. Uh, just as in 1525, he ignores the very few ministers who say, look, the French king is not going to honor his promises. Just so in 1550 and 1551, he and a small group of advisors, who were at this point at Innsbruck in Austria, uh, convince themselves that no, the German Protestants are perfectly happy, and even if they, they wanted to oppose me, uh, they don't have the strength or the popularity or the support. And uh, <laughs> within two months of them making that determination, the German Protestants have taken over the whole of Germany. So it, it's, it's, it's something in Charles's character. He's, he's too trusting. Um, um, he, he, he is a very shrewd operator. Go keep going back to this 1543 document. It's extraordinarily perceptive. But here are two occasions when he really is caught out because of his own uh, his own failure to calculate. Uh, uh, he's asleep. He's asleep at the controls. Uh, in 1525, he's asleep at the controls because as a knight, as a Burgundian knight, he makes assumptions that are totally unfounded. And in 1550 to 1551, he just thinks, well, everyone wants to stay together. The Lutherans, you know, what, what really is it worth fighting a war over transubstantiation? What does that word mean? Is this really worth a war? No, it isn't. And he's wrong about that, too. How would you evaluate Charles V's handling of the Protestant Reformation? Could he have plausibly done any better than he did? Ah. <sighs> The hard questions. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure Charles. In fact, Charles. I can I'm sure Charles asked that question. He did ask that question when he is at Uste. Uh, a historian comes to visit him, and that's pretty well the question he puts. You know, is is there anything you would have done differently, Majesty? He says. And Charles says, Yes, I really should have got rid of Luther when I had the chance. And it's easy to say that. You know, you take Martin out. I mean, there he is. He's he's uh, surrounded by a hostile crowd. Um, he's in the middle of uh, a, a, a meeting of the Diet, which is about a thousand people, and there's crowds packed into this little room. It would have been quite easy to capture him and take him out and, and tie him to a stake and burn him. But there are two reasons really why Charles doesn't do that. Um, the first is he's made a promise. He issues a safe conduct, and... Uh, there is a precedent for disrespecting safe conducts. The, the, the phrase is, you don't keep faith with heretics. 
and um, his uh, predecessor, Emperor Sigismund, had given the safe conduct to Jan Hus to come to the Council of Constance in 1415 and had burnt him. He'd said, you know, I don't keep faith with heretics. Hus, you're a heretic, and I'm going to burn you, and he burns him. And uh, so Charles could have done the same thing. Uh, he has uh, uh, the opportunity to use that argument, but he can't because Luther's protector is the elector of Saxony. And the elector of Saxony is the guy whose vote uh, sealed the election as emperor for Charles V. Uh, uh, Frederick uh, protects Luther and insists that the man should have a fair trial before, you know, before German authorities, before taken to the Inquisition or sent to Rome to be tried and no doubt to be burnt. So Charles can't do it. But just suppose, just suppose he had. By 1521, Luther has published, I don't know how many works, uh, uh, thousands, uh, hundreds, certainly hundreds of pamphlets, has got tens of thousands of followers. He's a real uh, magnetic figure. Um, and uh, uh, to have burnt him would not, I think, have wiped out the Reformation. It would have changed its nature because Luther would not have been there to shape it. But there's still Zwingli, uh, and there's a number of other uh, uh, leaders, there's Melanchthon in, in, in Saxony. So you could eliminate Luther, and you would illuminate Lutheranism perhaps in that form, but you would not stop the Protestant Reformation. So if that's the case, it continues, what would you do about it? And Charles clearly wants to try again. He really does want to wipe out the Lutherans. But one thing, and one thing only, stops him, and that is the Turkish military threat. When Charles wanted to become emperor, Holy Roman Emperor, and he gets elected King of the Romans in 1519, uh, uh, he does everything, he spends very heavily to get that. He really, really wants it. He has no idea in 1519 that there is a Protestant menace because Luther has not got going, and there is no Turkish threat because the Turks are still uh, in, in what today are the Balkans. But in 1526, the Turks take over Hungary around the frontier, not only of Germany, but of the Habsburg areas of Germany. And that is a terrifying prospect, and it cripples Charles's attempts to deal with the Lutherans in Germany because he needs them. He needs their troops. And uh, the Protestant leaders know it. Uh, I mentioned Philip of Hesse, one of the uh, uh, two people who, who is turned in in 1547 for defying the emperor. In 1529, he tells Luther, there's a letter to Luther saying, hey, you know, if we refuse to give Charles military assistance against the Turks, unless he gives us toleration for our religion, then he'll have to give in. And Charles does in 1529. He says, all right, all right, I'll give you guys toleration for five years. And then later he does the same. So it's really the Turks who cripple his attempts to eliminate the Reformation. I don't think it could have been done at Worms, and it certainly can't be done after 1526. Why did Charles V wish to change the succession plans for the empire in 1550? Yes, that is one of his most serious errors, and it certainly helps to explain why Mühlberg uh, is not a success. Charles uh, has promised his brother Ferdinand uh, from a very early stage that Ferdinand will succeed him. He gets the, the, the structure of the empire is such that you have to be elected uh, uh, and you can't have a successor elected. But Charles somehow succeeds in 1530. He succeeds in having his brother Ferdinand elected to the position called King of the Romans, which is what Charles was elected in 1519. In 1530, the Pope crowns him emperor. And shortly afterwards, that's in Bologna, in Italy. And uh, somewhat later in Germany, he persuades the seven electors to elect Ferdinand as King of the Romans, who is emperor-elect. And the understanding is that it's Ferdinand's son who will succeed as emperor after that. And in 1550, Charles decides that he wants his son Philip to come, become the next in line. Yes, Ferdinand, you can succeed, but then I want it to be Philip to restore my empire the way I had it. And Ferdinand, of course, is bitterly, bitterly disappointed, regards himself as being betrayed by his brother and goes away and has the sulks. And when the German Protestants oppose Charles, Ferdinand sits on his hands and in fact becomes a mediator between the Protestants and his brother. And it clearly his, um, uh, uh, the, Charles does not re rescind his view 
until 1553-1554. So Ferdinand is, uh, uh, yes, he'll become the next emperor, but then it goes back to Philip II. So Ferdinand no doubt thinks, and I have not found a document that says this, but he must have thought, why should I put myself out for a brother who's going to screw me and has screwed me? Why should I fight for Philip II's inheritance? No, I will just make myself agreeable to the Protestants, and then I'll have a decent reign when I succeed the emperor. And so uh, it, it's hard to tell exactly why Charles uh, reneges on his promise, but he, he does renege, just as I said, Maximilian uh, reneged on his promises uh, uh, and, and thought that was fine. Charles reneges on a number of promises and thinks it's fine. And one of the most uh, egregious examples is this one to Ferdinand, that Ferdinand and his succession, his descendants, will rule in Germany and the Austrian lands of the Habsburgs. And uh, Philip II will get the rest. And Charles changes his mind and, and persuades Ferdinand to agree to it. Uh, uh, and then uh, when the revolt comes in, Ferdinand just sits on his hands and Charles has to say, all right, all right, you win, Ferdy. Um, you and your kid can succeed. And they do. The, uh, the, uh, Ferdinand's line rules the uh, uh, Austrian lands until 1918. Why did Charles V abdicate? And how unique an event was this in the early modern period? I can't think of an early modern par parallel. You probably would have to go back to Diocletian. Uh, uh, and of course, to, to, to the men of the early modern period and the women of the early modern period, uh, uh, the Roman Empire was yesterday. You know, it's, uh, the Roman Empire is, is, is very real and they're always looking at precedents. So that probably is the case. But uh, Charles, um, um, Charles gave three accounts of why he abdicated, because it, it was without precedent in the century. And I, I think, uh, you, as I say, you'd have to go back nearly a thousand years to find some other emperor abdicating or even kings abdicating when they didn't have to. I mean, sometimes they abdicate because their subjects forced them out. In this case, Charles chooses to. And he himself said that he'd always planned to. He'd always planned to abdicate. And uh, uh, he, he, he just has different times. He says one time was after uh, uh, the Battle of Tunis. But his son Philip was only eight years old, and he couldn't he couldn't do that. He thought of abdicating when he'd won Mulberg, and that would have been a great time. He says this is again one of his interviews with um, the historian Juan Ginés de Sepúlveda, and he said to Sepúlveda, "That's what I should have done because then I would have avoided the terrible uh, uh, reverses that came afterwards." But he said, "You know, I just couldn't give up while I was winning." <laughs> I think we all recognise that sentiment. So the first is, I can't do it because my kid's too young. The second is, I just couldn't give up while I was winning. And then he said, uh, in, in, he said the third reason was in 1554, 1555, I was just so tired. And I was winning again, but this time I knew better. And so having uh, fought and defeated the, the French one more time in 1554, I thought, that's it. I, I need, I've got everything set up. Um, Ferdinand can rule Germany. Uh, I've got you, Philip, married to Mary Tudor, Queen of England, so you'll be safe there. She will make the Netherlands safe. You'll have a nice little uh, 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 orbit, uh, a nice little planetarium of possessions in the West and around the Atlantic, and you'll also have America, and you'll do fine, so I can step off the stage. And that's what he does. Uh, uh, he goes off, he leaves, he leaves the Netherlands, he goes to Juste, he joins a monastery, uh, okay, he has a little palace there, but at least at first, uh, he he really does not interfere. He stays out of affairs. He writes rejection letters. People say, you know, Your Majesty, I know you've abdicated, but couldn't you do this for me? And he says, no. He says, in my time, and me tiempo, I, I would have done that. But, you know, now it's my son who's in charge. So basically, go away. Um, and uh, it's only... Uh, uh, it's really the discovery of heresy in Spain when they discover Protestant cells in Valladolid and, and Seville. In fifth, early in 1558, the emperor suddenly springs back to life and said, this is intolerable. Heresy in Spain in my lifetime. I am not going to put up with this. And he bombards the government with letters saying, you know, treat them as you would traitors. You know, those who reconcile with the church cut their heads off, and those who remain obdurate, burn them alive. No trial, just go ahead. So he really gets him back into politics. But of course, by then, nobody really listens to him. Um, they, they say, you know, we had another letter from Juste, which made us all laugh, because nobody would do an extrajudicial 
uh, a punishment like this. Nobody would would burn people without trial. You know, the, the man the man is deranged. Um, and then in in September 1558, he dies. So that's the end of that. But he dies um, once once he steps off the stage. First of all, he doesn't want anything to do with the outside world. And then when he wants to come back, the outside world doesn't want to do anything with him. Overall, how would you rank Charles V in comparison with other rulers of the 16th century? Hmm. Uh, well, uh, I mean, number one, <laughs> he survives. Henry VIII dies uh, uh, with his country in crisis. He's in constant fear of an invasion. Francis I dies having concluded a terribly, terribly unfavorable treaty uh, with, with Charles, the Treaty of Crepy. In 1544, even his son Henry II uh, uh, says it's a terrible deal and vows he will um, uh, he, he will he will uh, not respect it. But he's beaten into shape again uh, uh, by the Spaniards at the Battle of Saint Quentin in 1557, Saint Quentin, uh, just after Charles abdicates, and he also makes an even more humiliating peace in 1559, and then he's jousting uh, uh, something that Charles V loves. And and his eyes put out, and he dies. Uh, he dies a few days after the joust. So uh, uh, you know, by this standard, um, uh, Charles V, who rules for forty years, you know, without without really losing the plot, uh, he starts. He, he he gets his emancipation, as it's called, in January 1515, and he doesn't abdicate until October 1555. Um, doesn't abdicate from Spain a little later. Uh, so, you know, 40 clear years ruling an empire, let us not forget, a, a, a double empire. There's an empire in America, which is won almost entirely uh, by his, uh, his his servants, and an empire in Europe, uh, largely gained through uh, inheritance um, and through uh, 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 the election as Holy Roman Emperor, which he, you know, through, through money. So in, in Europe, uh, very few conquests. Milan is the one that stands out. Helderland. Uh, uh, Gelderland is the other, uh, but most of what he gets, he gets by peaceful means. Uh, all of what he gets in America is conquered. But he does put together this first transatlantic empire, a transatlantic empire that will last until the 19th century. That's longer than anybody else's. Uh, uh, and so, you know, it's it's. Um, uh, I, I would rate him very highly uh, in comparison with any other ruler in the 16th century. You conclude the book by stating, "Quote." Charles V was an extraordinary man who did extraordinary things, unquote. Could you elaborate just a little bit on that? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I stand by that verdict. Uh, it comes at the end of a very long episode called The Balance of the Reign. Uh, uh, there certainly is a lot to criticize. I mean, he's a liar. Uh, 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 sometimes on oath, he swears on the head of the empress who's just died that he knew nothing about the murder of two French ambassadors, and yet he condoned it, he knows all about it, he protects the perpetrators, and he's lying through his teeth. Uh, uh, he lies about a lot of things, but I think all politicians must lie sometimes. He is terrible in his treatment towards women, especially his mother. I mentioned that uh, Ferdinand the Catholic, his grandfather, uh, Joanna's mother, uh, locks her up and puts her in um, a palace at Tordesillas, uh, uh, not far from Valladolid in Spain, and uh, creates a sort of fictitious world, pretending that uh, uh, she still has power, but she doesn't. And Charles V takes that over. He doesn't free his mother from Tordesillas. She spends the rest of her life there. And he creates this fictional world. Um, Bethany Aram, who wrote a book called Joanna the Mad, uh, uh, uncovered this extraordinary facade of, of falsehoods. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Charles V pretends and, and instructs all her captors to pretend that, that Ferdinand is still alive, even though he's dead, because she still respects her father. And if they said, well, Ferdinand wants you to do this, she will eventually do it. He pretends that Maximilian is still alive. And I mean, that, that's bad. That's terrible. I mean, imagine what that does. Uh, and eventually she does find out she's been lied to, so the fictional world comes to an end. But then he starts robbing her. <laughs> you know, um, She's a queen. She's a queen. She's come all the way from the Netherlands with lovely tapestries, um, church vestments, silver and gold. And, and Charles robs her whenever he visits Dordesillas. And he does come quite a number of times, maybe 10 times to visit his mum. And each time he goes away with some of her stuff. First of all, he... Um, 
he uses it to, uh, to, to for the wedding gifts for his sister, who's going to marry the king of Portugal. And he filches a lot of Joanna's stuff to avoid having to pay for it himself. And then most, most seedy of all, when he gets married in 1526, he again raids his mother's tapestries to give to his wife. Um, and and you know, to, to, to complete the, uh, uh, the charade, he then puts stones and bricks in the boxes where they were stored so that she won't know if she, she tests the weight or someone lifts up the weight. And says, oh, yes, your majesty, it's still very heavy. It's bricks inside. Uh, uh, and he rides away before she finds out. This is this is this is really seated. This is very unpleasant. I I, I can't really like Charles um, in his treatment of, of of women. And Joanna just gets the worst. But on the other hand, as I say, you know, there's much to praise. Uh, we haven't talked about the uh, his treatment of America, but America fascinates him. He 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 of course is very interested in the money. Always into money, but he's also interested in in the flora and fauna. Uh, he has a little zoo uh, of of um, um, American animals, and he's very interested in the in things like the the very light feathers uh, uh, that you can get, which make a sort of manta, a sort of blanket that's very light for him, and he loves that. Um, he he also is very keen on protecting uh, the population. Uh, of America, uh, or at least uh, interfering in their lives. He's, uh, uh, he wants to restrain the colonists, the Spanish colonists, and he puts in place a very elaborate and very successful set of rules to prevent them just enjoying themselves and, and, and tearing up uh, the lives of the native population. Uh, uh, he um, is uh, uh, very, um, uh, he takes great steps to try and protect the indigenous population. Um, partly because they are an asset, and as I say, he's into money, but also because of his conscience. Several times he says, you know, my conscience will not allow me to do this. Uh, uh, may I read you just one example? Um, uh, uh, after the um, suppression of the revolt in Peru, uh, uh, the minister sent out to deal with it, finds out that the local Spanish colonists, uh, the victorious colonists who've defeated the rebellion, are sending out Indian population, Native Americans, to the mines. And this minister, Pedro de Legasca, says, you know, his majesty, and I know his majesty's mind, having been informed of how the indigenous population of Hispaniola, that's modern Haiti and the Dominican Republic, how the population of Hispaniola and Cuba and other islands have been suffered uh, by the uh, destruction of the Indies, he believes now that he will go to hell if he allows that this should happen in the rest of America. Now he knows he will not change his mind. You cannot do this. You have to stop because of his majesty's conscience. And he fears he will go to hell if he does not protect the Indian population. Now, there is the only ruler in the early modern period who takes that stance. Nobody else does. Not Philip II, not Elizabeth. Uh, not the French monarchs. They couldn't care less about the native population, but Charles V can, and he does. And I think he also creates universities uh, for the native population. No, he does a lot. Uh, uh, and um, that, I think, is one of the most likable characteristics of him. So on the whole, you know, he rules a larger empire than anybody else for 40 years. That's a longer period than anybody else. And uh, I, I stand by that statement. You know, we, uh, by... 21st century standards, uh, uh, his personal defects and shortcomings tarnish his image. But I think his contemporaries are correct when they say he was an extraordinary man who achieved extraordinary things. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? That's it. That, that uh, We have enough sources now from documents to digits to get extraordinarily close to this human being. Uh, uh, you can look at others. You can look at Martin Gare, as Natalie Zeman Davis did. You can look at the Miller Minocchio, uh, as Carlo Ginsberg did. But you really have only one source for each of them, or two sources. Whereas with Charles, you have literally hundreds of sources, maybe thousands of sources, because he travels all the time. He, he sleeps in at least a thousand places. Uh, uh, he's on the move as much as, say, Winston Churchill during World War II. He's always on the move, and wherever he goes, he lives a lot, leaves a large paper trace. He writes a lot of documents himself, 
uh, uh, he uh, writes out the pros and cons before he takes a piece of uh, important action. He will say, right, I know the answer and I know I'm the only audience. I'm the audience of one, but here's what I think. And those documents have survived. So we get very close to him. Uh, uh, I mean, you could say that there's a danger uh, that we make him like ourselves. Um, uh, Fernand Brodel, who, who, who was, of course, a wonderful historian, but also very mischievous, uh, uh, wrote the following, if I may quote him. Um, In writing about an eminent 16th century figure, will we not unconsciously write too much about ourselves, about our own times? And then he has a waspish smash at... Um, Marcel Bataillon, who wrote a wonderful book about Erasmus, and Brodel says, Erasmus is portrayed by Marcel Bataillon, resembles Marcel Bataillon. And he goes on to say, I myself have spent more than 40 years in the company of Philip II. I've tried to be careful to keep my distance from a complex person, but increasingly I find myself attempting to excuse him, no doubt in the hope of understanding him and thus bringing him back to life. Well, I hope I've brought Charles back to life without excusing him, where there's things to uh, uh, complain about, like his treatment of Joanna. I've said so. And uh, uh, it, it seems to me that it's a, it's a big book, okay? I, I grant you it's a big book. And nevertheless, at the end of it, I think you get as close as you're going to get today to any 16th century figure, with the possible exception of Martin Luther. Luther left probably more ego documents. But Charles V is a close second. And I think that's why I wrote the book. That's why I enjoyed writing the book. I didn't always enjoy the company of Charles V, but I did enjoy the journey with him. Well, on that uh, note, um, which I wholly agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Parker, for being so kind as to speak to us today. This is Charles Petillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you once again, Professor. Thank you so much for your interest in my work. Great to talk to you.